Let us continue worship with a reading from Galatians 5, 16 through 25. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing these th the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. Glad you're with us today. Uh, if I don't know you, my name's Chris. I'm uh, on staff here at Riverstone. And we are in an ongoing conversation um, about the biblical portrait of the Holy Spirit. Who is he? What does he, what does he do? And we've really been looking at it from a 30,000-foot level because what you often find is when you bring up the Holy Spirit, uh, people immediately zoom in to passages that talk about the more um, weird gifts of the Spirit, um, like prophecy or tongues or healing. And people get wigged out pretty quick, you know? And then totally ignore every other thing uh, in Scripture it says the Holy Spirit does, um, even other gifts of the Spirit in that same list. Did you know in that list of gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, um, did you know that administration is one of the gifts of the Spirit? All the admins said, amen. <laughs> Plugging in that spreadsheet and the power of the Holy Spirit. Huh? Working a calendar and a to-do list. Power of the Holy Spirit, baby. Right? Did you know... <laughs> In the list, in, first, in Romans 12, um, serving is a gift of the Spirit, encouraging people, just like giving someone a hug, gift of the Spirit, man. <laughs> Did you know that giving money is called a gift of the Spirit in Romans 12? A gift. If people have the gift. I want people in my life to have that gift. You know what I'm saying? Leadership. Gifts given by God, the, the ability to lead and communicate, all for the building up of the church. But most of the time, you know, as soon as you start saying things like, I believe in the power and presence and gifts of the Holy Spirit, people put you in the weirdo box with the kind of people that put Jedi Knight in the, in the you know, uh, religion box on forums. You know what I'm talking about? No one knows about that? Yeah. Uh, and I've just been trying to push back on this in some ways um, in terms of really what the Bible actually says the Holy Spirit does, but on the other hand, to show you that there's really no such thing as a normal Christian because the New Testament clearly shows that it's completely impossible to be a Christian and not be in an ongoing, receiving, submitting relationship with the Holy Spirit. That's what we just read. Keep in step with the Spirit. Live by the Spirit. I don't know if you've read the New Testament. I'm not assuming all of, us, all of you have or do. But if you do, you will see quickly on every page that we are told to live such a life that is saturated with this 
person thing called the Holy Spirit. Let's just do a really quick one. Ephesians 5.18, we're told to be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.25, we're told to live by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. Keep in step. Acts 2.38 calls him a gift. He's given. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says he indwells his people. 2 Corinthians 3.17 says where he is, there is freedom. Romans 7.6 says that you are to serve in the new way of the Spirit. Supposed to mark how we serve each other. Romans 8.2 says it's actually, it's actually the rule of the Spirit in your heart that gives life. So when you submit to the Holy Spirit, that it's His Spirit that sets you free from the rule of sin and death. God's Holy Spirit does that. John 14 says that it's the Holy Spirit that reminds you of the things Jesus says. Romans 8, 16, it's him who bears witness to the fact that you're actually saved. (laughs) I'd like him in my life more. John 16, 13 says, it's him who makes our heart cry, Abba. It's him, the Holy Spirit. It's the thing in you that causes you to cry out to God, Father. Who on earth gets to cry out to God, Father, right? You know all those um, attributes that are like universally praised is right and good? Like, you know, like universally praised, like love. And no one's going to hate on love, right? right? Peace, kindness, you know, practice random acts of kindness, right? No one's going to hate on those. You know those? You know what those are? Those are called fruits of the Spirit. How about that? Ephesians 1.14, we're told that his Spirit is given to us like a deposit of heaven. Galatians 5.16 says we're supposed to walk by the Spirit. Walking is the most basic way you traverse life. Walking is, who walks for exercise? Lame. Right, walking is so monotonous and boring. Dude, you are told to do the most lame, basic thing in life by the Spirit. (laughs) Just kidding. It's not lame, whatever. You're told to keep in step with the Spirit. That's walking analogy. Walking, just doing life. And y'all, we're barely scratching the surface of how the Holy Spirit is portrayed in the New Testament, like barely scratching the surface, right? We could, I could have just kept going the whole time. I want to challenge your notion of what you think it means to be a Christian, especially if you think the primary thing that makes you a Christian is following a bunch of rules and maybe showing up to a church from time to time. Number one, that's lame. And number two, the Bible's going to actually say that's a shadowy short sell of what it means to know God. That's exactly what the Bible is, shadow. It's a shadow, what it means to know God, right? So last week we said the Holy Spirit is the active agency of God in the world. It's his arm. What's that mean? Well, that means that the Holy Spirit is how he speaks to you. It's how he leads you. It's how he guides you, how he pours life into you. Titus 3, 5 says, hey, dude, you're not saved by your works, but because of his mercy, through the washing, the rebirth, the regeneration, the renewal. Oh, and all that stuff, regeneration, renewal, rebirth, all that stuff. Oh, that's done by the Holy Spirit, right? It's, guys, it's the Holy Spirit who does the work of giving you new life here and now. 
It's like, no, no wonder I feel so dead. I'm wigged out by the Holy Spirit. You know? I don't ever want to, I don't ever do the Holy Spirit stuff. I don't go to that kind of church. Is this the kind of church now, Chris? Ah. Right? Right? It's the Holy Spirit who does the work of giving you new life. In fact, the kind of life the Holy Spirit gives, the only way Jesus could describe it is being born again. It's a life of such a quality that is so contrasting the way you live right now. Jesus said, it's like, you've been, it's like you just died and now you've been born again. That's how different the kind of life the Holy Spirit longs to give us. The promise and invitation of the Holy Spirit, y'all, is a totally new way of being human. And if you've settled for following an ethic morale and showing up to church every once in a while, dude, I'm, you, I'm sorry. Like, how, Christianity must suck for you. <laughs> That's not what's on the table, guys. The offer of being a Christian is not, here, adopt this moral ethic and then show up from time to time to a, a, a stage where a bunch of amateur actors get on it. It's not the invitation. The invitation is to a whole, a holy new kind of living, a, a new humanity. It's humanity 2.0. It's, it's, it's life like you could never dream of or attain on your own. And the source of that new humanity, it's not rules. It's not ceremony. It's not trying harder. The Bible's gonna say that the source of that new life is the spirit of the living God in you, dwelling inside, empowering you. It's a completely new resource at your fingertips. And if you've been trying to run the machine of your life on like what, stand or something like that, well, when the Holy Spirit fills you, it's like you finally figured out, oh, this thing, this machine runs on petrol. This machine runs on gas. That's the kind of difference we're talking about. You've been pouring sand in your tank and no wonder the thing doesn't go. No wonder the relationships are horrible for you. No wonder church is so lame. You've been putting sand in the tank, man. What we're told is that we are meant to run off of the resource of the power and indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, okay? And it's why I've said plenty of times from this pulpit, dude, you are not saved to rules. You're not saved to rules. Well, if you're like, okay, what are we saved to then? Well, according to the New Testament, you are saved so that God himself would dwell in you. That's what you've been saved to, that you and me, would become the place where heaven and earth meet. That's a bold claim. Yeah, that's the claim of the New Testament. That me and you are to become the place where, not this building, not this church, not this, what, drywall and lights? This is where God's supposed to dwell? Are you kidding me? No, we don't need any of this junk to experience God. He wants to dwell in me and you, our bodies. How he, the picture of the New Testament is that God is seen dwelling in us. Guess, guess how? Guess, guess how? Guess how he's seen dwelling in us? By our rhetoric? By how we can get up on the stage and talk? No. By our good songs? No. Do you know how the New Testament describes, hey, this is how you know God dwells in you? By the way you interact with one another. By your love for the people around you or your lack thereof. Right? Is that's the thing where you start seeing the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit impacting a community. Not how good our services are. Have mercy. <laughs> you know, it's how we talk to our wife. 
That's where the power of the Holy Spirit comes in, and that's where I need it. Anyone else? You know where I need the power of the Holy Spirit? When I get home from an exhausting day and I'm giving in to the temptation that because I've worked hard, I can emotionally check out from engaging with my family. That's where I need the power of the Holy Spirit. You can have a good service. I would like to be alive. I would like the Spirit of God living in me so that I can love people around me. I'll take that any day over a good service. Can we chat about this? What are you saved to? You're not saved to rules. You're saved to the living God dwelling inside you. So where are we getting this? How can I say this, right? This is a pretty bold claim, right? That that me and you are supposed to be the place where heaven and earth meet, right? Like me and you, lights and darkness, right? Sources of life and oceans of death. That's God's vision for your life, right? And it outshines, I'll tell you what, it outshines my vision for my life. Like my vision for my life was like, man, if I can keep my kids out of prison, probably be doing a good job, you know? I can like, I just keep a job, you know? If I could just keep a job, I'll probably do it. Like I, that's, you know, with the bar is kind of low for my vision, right? God's vision is that his followers are to be where heaven and earth meet, where God dwells. Where am I getting this? It's a bold claim. Well, if you're a Christian, uh, well, sorry, if you're a Christian, you are to be the place. That's the point. Now, how can I say that? How can I say that? Uh, in the New Testament, it is chocked full of analogies and metaphors. It's like brilliant. If you don't know if you've ever read it, it's amazing. Like tons of metaphors and analogies. And usually these metaphors are just like spilling over with implications and context. And one you see pretty quick in the New Testament is that of uh, temple imagery. <clears throat> temple imagery. Metaphor. It's a metaphor. New Testament. Uh, they start calling things temples that are not temples. All right? What are they getting at? All right? What am I talking about? Makes sense, Pastor. Well, the first thing we see, in, in, the first time we see it in the New Testament is in the Gospel of John. Uh, Jesus says to a bunch of people, he says, hey, destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. And everyone scoffs because they're sitting under the shadow of a temple that took 46 years to build, right? And they're like, you're going to build this thing in three days? And then John, in 2.21, the author, the gospel, John, right? He, he like turns to the reader and he's like, oh, by the way, he was talking about the temple of his body, right? Love that, right? John starts actually his gospel account uh, by, by saying some, some stuff like this. In the beginning was the word, the word became, you know, that whole thing's beautiful thing and first chapter of John. He says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Do you know what that Greek word there, dwelt, means? Literally, it means tabernacled. That's what it actually says. The word became flesh. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus became flesh and tabernacled among us. You can look it up. Skanau. (laughs) It means to fix a tent, a tabernacle. Well, what on earth is that? If we're going to begin to understand this imagery, we have to understand what a tabernacle is. You know what a tabernacle is? The tabernacle was the first temple, right, in the book of Exodus, right? So to understand this, we've got to sit with this for a second. You know the first time the tabernacle shows up in the Bible? The first temple of God? It's in Exodus 25. And guess what the tabernacle is also called? It's also called, repetitively, uh, the tent of meeting. The tent of Meeting. Okay, so what are we getting? Well, the temple is apparently about something meeting. What? The meeting of what? Well, to keep on reading, it appears to be that the temple, the tabernacle, is the meeting of the eternal and the temporal. 
It's the meeting of heaven and earth, the meeting of God and man. It's where God meets his people. And if you're like, well, yeah, but isn't tabernacle and temple, didn't they like sacrifice animals? Well, that's a part of it. But God actually tells them the whole purpose and goal of the tabernacle up front. In Exodus 25, he says this, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. The temple, the tabernacle, where is where God wanted to dwell? That's it. That's the image we get. So in the temple, this is really cool. I mean, actually, it's not really cool. It's like 15 chapters of mind-numbing details. But in the temple, everything is done exactly how God wants it done. If you read Exodus, you'll probably check out about chapter 25 because until the end, it's like, and there are five cubits of this and sort of dolphin porpoise skin and paint it purple and needs to be this, right? And there's like hyper concentration of details. One of the things they, translators don't know how to translate it. Some of them translate it like dolphin skin. Others translate it like leather. They don't know what it means. Anyway, not the point. Hyper concentration of details in the temple. And you're like, oh, it just goes on and on and on, right? 15 chapters. Hey, uh, you know the menorah? You know the Jewish menorah? The, se- the seven candles? This is where we get it. And it's like to the T specified how God wants it to be. It's got like this candlestick and it's got these and it should look like this on top. And if you read it, like, dude, why all these details? Like today, you can go in the Middle East to a complete replica of the temple because there's so many details. It's exactly what he wanted, right? And what is it all getting at? Well, it represents this area, this, this domain, the temple, the tabernacle comes to represent this domain, this area in the Jewish mind that's totally set apart. And in this domain, in this temple, God gets his way perfectly. Everything in the temple is done exactly to the detail how God wants it done. Well, what's the point, right? To appease an angry deity? No, that's not the point at all. In fact, God told him what the point is. The point of the temple is so that I can dwell in your midst. Now, let's just chat for a second. Isn't it interesting? We tend to think the goal is to get to heaven when we die. Don't we think that? Don't we tend to think the goal of Christianity, the goal of all this stuff, is so that we can go somewhere else when we die? Well, God seems to be interested not in bringing you up to heaven, but in bringing heaven down to you. That's what we just read. The tabernacle was God come to men. It was that he may dwell in their midst. That's not man going to heaven, y'all. That's God coming down to earth. So John connects this with Jesus. He says, oh yeah, Jesus, he was God come to men. Jesus was heaven come to earth. Jesus, he tabernacled with us. Very interesting, isn't it? Then something really surprising happens with this whole analogy, like stunning, okay? The whole analogy of the temple, right? The New Testament writers start applying this body-temple analogy, not just to Jesus, which makes sense to me, right? He's Jesus, right? Uh, But they begin to apply it to his followers. They begin to say things like, do you not know that you're God's temple? They begin to say things like, oh, do you not know your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own? They say things like, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Ephesians 2, 
the author gives like a corporate picture of the temple, not an individual picture. In other words, he says, hey, actually, guys, it's us together, uh, corporately, that are being built into a temple for God, joined together, built into a temple for God, right? In Christ, we're being built into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, me and you. Now, my question is how can they apply language Jesus used about himself to me and you? Like, I, I get Jesus, dwelling place of God, right? But me? Do you know me? Do, do you know you? Do you know any human? How can they say this? Dude, these are Jews. They knew temple laws. They knew purity laws. How could they imagine that our bodies would become a temple for God, where the holy of holies is? Like, you, you, no one gets to go in there to the high, right? Where God gets his way perfectly, where heaven and earth meet? Well, how can they say stuff like this? Well, I mean, if you remember some more things about the temple, which sure you do, right? Uh, there was a lot of blood in the temple. You remember that? Like, a lot of blood, like gross, gross. Like, you're like, did they wash that off from time to time? Because it would have caked on after the year. It would have been gross up in there, right? The temple also represents this type of seriousness when it comes to sin and rebellion and human stubbornness, right? And that that had to be dealt with if God was going to come and hang out with us, right? In fact, if you remember last week, was it last week or the week before? You know, God says, hey, I'm not going to go with you because if I go with you, I may consume you. You remember that bit? So that was immediately preceding what's happening here. Now God's saying, okay, I'm going to go with you but we're gonna to have to set up some things. And unfortunately, there's gonna to have to be some bloodshed about the seriousness of the sin, right? The, the stubbornness. So, so there's that whole element that really makes us uncomfortable, maybe for reading the Bible. But then the New Testament comes along and claims that it was actually the, the, the blood of Jesus that once and for all has made clean what was hopelessly unclean. And now has made a way not for you to get up to God, but for God to get down to you. That's the picture of the New Testament. That God himself would come down and dwell in you. So number one, the blood of Christ. But number two, Pentecost sealed the deal for this image in the New Testament. This temple image. The image of a tabernacle, right? Um, something at Pentecost comes over uh, every person in the room. Do you remember what that was? A flame. Yeah, it was, it, well, actually, it wasn't a flame. It was something that looked like a flame, as of fire, came and rested. That's, what, that's the language, rested on every person in the room. You know what's really interesting about all those details of the t tabernacle and temple? You know the menorah that we talked about? It tells us that, hey, that thing, that needs to be lit all the time. Never goes out. Always a flame burning. Uh, did you know uh, in the Old Testament, fire wasn't just fire uh, to the Jews. Uh, fire always had meaning. Do you know what it meant? Moses came upon a bush that was what? Burning. Yeah. Uh, what did God lead the Jewish people by, you know, from by day, some by night? Remember that thing? Yeah. Fire always symbolized the living, active presence of God amongst his people. You can read the Bible. I mean, you have it. You probably have it on your phone. You can read it. <laughs> It's all there. And fire always came to mean his living presence with us. And it was always going in the temple. Always going in the temple. Always represented his presence, right? So we have these, you know, 
kind of flames here. <laughs> uh, so what does it mean then that something as a fire comes and rests on everyone? Tim Mackey calls Pentecost a tale of two temples because it's what helped his followers begin to understand God doesn't want to dwell in a, temp- in a building. And I don't think he ever did, actually. And what the picture was resting, what they began to start to figure out is, dude, like God wants to dwell, rest on and in every single person who calls his name. He wants to, he wants to, his presence is supposed to be an abiding reality in their life. So much so that they begin to say things like, you need to walk by the spirit. Keep in step with what? The spirit of the living God. Because he is supposed to be, in his followers, this ever-abiding power and presence. And Pentecost sealed the deal for him. And so then they can just drop all this temple analogy left and right, right? The veil, if you remember, was torn in the temple, wasn't it? When Jesus died, right? And now the fire of God would not live behind the veil. Now it would live in you and in me. You and me are supposed to be the place where heaven and earth meet. And they were beginning to realize this, right? That he wants every one, uh, every one of his followers to be full of his spirit. What's the bottom line? God wants intimacy, man. Intimacy. Intimacy with you. Personal indwelling, right? And if this is true, if all this is true, dude, it reframes the whole story. Like, what did Jesus come to give you? What did Jesus come to give? Is the big thing Jesus came to give forgiveness? Well, certainly. That's certainly it. But dude, the primary thing sinners need to become new again was not just forgiveness. That's a big part of it. But forgiveness to what end? It was forgiveness to be made into a dwelling place for God. Forgiveness was simply the work necessary to remove the barrier between you and God. If you read John 14 and 16, not saying you will, but you could. I mean, it's, it's in there and all, we all have it, you know. But if you read it, Jesus is parting words to his disciples. He keeps on talking about this guy. He keeps on talking about this person called the helper. You heard this? When the helper comes, he's going to teach you everything. He'll bear witness about me. Don't worry, guys. The helper's going to come. John 16, 7. Nevertheless, I'll tell you the truth. It is to your advantage, Jesus said, hey, it's better for you if I go away. Because if I don't go away, the helper won't come. And you, you need the helper, right? In Jesus' mind, It appears the goal of his ministry would culminate not simply in forgiveness, but in the helper coming. So, okay, pastor, are you saying the whole reason Jesus came was to give us the Holy Spirit? No, 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 no. I'm saying Jesus is saying the whole reason he came was to give you the Holy Spirit. Okay, just go read the book. All this for what? All this suffering for what? Well, he said, if I don't go away... The helper won't come, but it's to your advantage that I go away. If this is all true, if this is integral to why Jesus came, to make us fit to be the very dwelling place of God, if this is what Jesus came to make right again, what does that mean we lost in the garden when we sinned? What did we forfeit when we sinned? What what changed in Genesis after sin entered? What did Jesus come to restore? In Genesis, God pronounces death, but they didn't drop dead, but something changed. Right? They lost access to the garden. They repented. Well, I suppose you could say the primary thing that they lost was God's will being done. Like in its most simple terms, right? 
Like he wanted certain things done, right? Here's the temple. Certain things are going to be done. Humanity refused it, and boom. Now who gets their will done? Well, you do, not God. That's what we lost. We lost God's manifest will. Now humanity would get their way, right? And, And welcome to the world, a world where humanity gets their way. And when Jesus came to restore what? Well, he came to restore God's desire on the earth, or as he called it, the kingdom. That's what Jesus called it, the kingdom, God's will, God's rule and reign, that God's desire was always to dwell in man, and that was lost, right? And so what, what was sort of the temple of man, our temple, then became not a temple of God, but a, but a shrine to who? Us. A shrine to self. That's what happened in sin. That's what happened at the fall. We dethroned God and we enthroned ourselves. And every evil known to man has come from God being dethroned and you being enthroned on the heart of your seat of your life. Every evil. Every evil known to man. All of man's repetitive stubbornness, right? God says, my ruach, that's the Old Testament word, my ruach is not going to strive with them forever. But now they're, they're going to they're return to dust. Well, what's all that mean? Well, your body's a temple, and there was something that was meant to dwell in it. And I think all of us almost intuitively know it because you've probably had seasons where the only word to describe your emotional, spiritual state was the word empty. Is that just me? I just feel empty. Do you know that actually sounds really strange? What do you mean empty? Like you're full of blood and organs. What are you talking about? Christian or not, we have a sense that we can live empty lives. We can be shells of a person, right? And the Bible's gonna agree, but then it's gonna take it a step further. It's gonna say, yeah, that's right. Your body is kind of like a shell. Actually, it's a temple. And you know what? Temples were made for a purpose. What I'm trying to tell you is sin kicked God out of his temple. And in his absence, the body has now become a shrine to self. Andrew Murray says, when sin entered the world, man lost the life of God dwelling in him, and he became dead to it, right? And he goes on to say that every form of evil and darkness and oppression, all evils that man has contrived throughout all of history, at its root has this fundamental uh, causation, God dethroned and man enthroned in the temple of his life, right? God, God pushed it aside and self enthroned in our bodies, right? And of course, the objection to this is, well, it's my life, Chris. I can do what I want with it. Well, let, is it? Let's just one, in the most simple terms, let's just talk about it one second, then we'll get out of here, okay? Like, did you cause yourself to come into existence? What did you have to do with your conception? <laughs> Nothing, okay? Did you will your heart to start beating? Did you fill your veins with blood and ensure your lungs do what they're supposed to do and kidneys do what they're supposed to do? No, you didn't do any of that. No, it's a universal truth that I think we've only lost in the past hundred years of modern science, right? We've covered it up, right? That you are not your own, right? And there's no such thing as a self-made man. Dude, if you, that's the modern era getting you high on an illusion of control, right? Humanity used to know well that there are things outside of my control. And I know and we know that something had to create us. We, we, you know, we used to know that, right, in the natural world, right? And if all this is true, then the creator being has a claim on your life. Or as the New Testament writers would say, 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body's temple of the Holy Spirit, right? 
whom you have from God. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. Jesus came, y'all, point, right? So that God might dwell inside you via the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Let me just close with this. There's a lot of things in the New Testament that make me uncomfortable, okay? One of them that sticks out is when Jesus says this. Jesus said this. <laughs> he said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Is anyone else shocked by that? That Jesus would call you, the, like, I, I thought you were the light of the world, right? Every time I read this, I'm like, Jesus, are you sure? Like, do you, again, do, do you know me? Like, I, can't, I can barely get out of bed on time, all right? You're gonna, how can you say, all right, well, apparently, the power of the Holy Spirit is such that it can take the likes of me and you and sanctify and transform us into radiant beings that give light to everyone around us. And if you think you can do that on your own steam, that is absurdly arrogant. Like, does no, does no one ever read the New Testament and then look at your own life and say, one of these things doesn't match, you know? And of course, what most people do is throw out the Bible and they cling to their own broken, sin-filled experience and say, well, my experience must be the true reality, right? And I just want to tell you, not only is that arrogant, but dude, what if you're wrong? What if there's more, y'all? Like, what if you could be full of joy? Can I just say that one more time? What if? you could be full of joy. What, what, what if you could be full of love? What if it could fill your being to overflowing? What if kindness and patience and self-control could be the defining characteristics of your life? Like, what if that could happen? Do you know what I just described to you? It's the list of the fruits of the trying harder. Yes, that's the fruit of trying harder. No, oh, yeah, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all those things. We're like, oh, I, want, I need some of that in my life. Oh, I need it, right? Yell at my kid, get a week without yelling at my kids. I need some patience. What if you could be the kind of person? Oh, oh, that's the fruit of finding the right church. Isn't it? No, no. That's, that's called, that, that list is called the fruit of reading the right books, the fruit of singing the right songs. The fr no, none of those things, right? No, that's the fruit of the Spirit in your life. That's what the Scripture says. I can't, I, I don't know what else to tell you, dude. I don't know what you're looking for for life. I don't know what you're looking for to change you, to make you a more patient, kind person. Maybe nothing. But if you're, but apparently what we're supposed to be looking for, or two, is that the Holy Spirit come into you and begin bearing not your fruit, but his. I just ain't got it in me. I, I just ain't, I don't. And can I just be honest with you for a second? Like you've been pretty honest already, Chris, anyway, right? <laughs> right? I begin to feel instantly needy when I read the New Testament. Like, just needy. Like do you, I don't know if you ever read stuff like this, 
and you begin to tremble under the weight of your own faithlessness? Like, how, God? Like, how, how are you going to make me into this? I, I, can't, I can't even get out of bed on time. Like, how are you going to make me into the kind of person who is the dwelling place of God? Like, is anyone else just bewildered by their own inadequacy when you begin to read the New Testament, right? Like, I am so often wrapped up in my own humanity and my fears and my insecurities and my appetites that when I sit under a vision like this, I look at it with severe, maybe even debilitating skepticism. God's vision that we can be the kind of people in which his spirit acts and lives and moves and redeems, that we could be the hands and feet of Jesus and extend his very life to the world, right? This is why the New Testament is so adamant, y'all, that the rules and the law cannot make you come alive. The laws of God may be the path of life, but they cannot give it. Christianity is not a salvation to rules. It's salvation to intimacy with God and his spirit dwelling in you. And I'd encourage you, if you want the spirit of God dwelling in you, ask him. Do you want the spirit of God in you? And if you do, I would just tell you, dude, in submission and humility and repentance, invite him back to the throne. Because Jesus said, hey, good fathers. I'm, I'm sorry, he said, actually, wicked fathers. He said, you guys... Being wicked? Don't wicked fathers know how to give good gifts to their kids? Yeah, okay. Well, how much more will the Father of, of good, like heavenly, you know, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And then Jesus says stuff like, hey, man, don't worry. It's the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. The sacrifice of Jesus, the blood, the cross, the suffering, Suffering was that so that you would be filled with his spirit. And I'd argue the only shot you have at being the kind of light the Bible talks about to your friends and your family or your workplace is when you surrender the throne to the true king and ask his spirit to dwell in you. And if you are trying to do it on your own steam, I would imagine you're quite tired, quite tired, quite fatigued, maybe even just barely hanging on. So why don't we just ask God to fill us with his spirit? Just stay right there. Let's just pray right now. Let's pray. God, I don't know if anyone else feels it, but I, I, I feel the weight of your word uh, pressing on my own life right now. And I feel uh, the vision that you have for me um, so far outshines my own vision for my life that I, I, I tend to despair. I, I tend to want to surrender to my own experience and call it reality. God, would you grace us, gift us with faith today? Lord, we ask you to help us believe that you are strong enough to take even the likes of us and transform us. Lord, it's a tall order, and our hearts struggle underneath it, Lord. And I think all I can pray and ask for my friends is we believe Help our unbelief. So Holy Spirit, would you come? Come in power. God, would you fill us with the kind of life that we could never fill ourselves with? 
God, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now who are looking for life in all the wrong places. They could be looking for it in unethical, immoral ways, or they could be looking for it within religious structures and doing all the right things, but they're not looking to you. They're not asking for your life as a gift. They're thinking they can earn it on their own. Would you come, Holy Spirit, and gift us with yourself, God? Every time um, I come to you, Lord, uh, in honesty, I'm bewildered um, that what you tend to respond with gift, that you give us things even when we don't deserve it. So God, today I just ask you to give my friends, you'd give us the gift of your Holy Spirit. Fill us with life that we can't create on our own. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, guys. Let's receive communion. This is the part of our service.